This is Party in China. It's the tale of one man's complete failure to comprehend China and her people. I, Party Parslow, solemnly swear to tell the truth, but not the whole truth. Too much happened, and not nothing but the truth, because there are opinions and jokes, hearsay and conjecture, and more misunderstandings and mistakes than I even know about yet. But this is the true story of my time in China, and the more than 500 days when I tried mightily and failed miserably to understand what the hell was going on over there. Previously on Party in China, well, nothing, this is the first episode, so uh, let's get on with it. Loud banging erupted upon the front door of my new apartment in the city of Diyang in the province of Sichuan in the People's Republic of China. As the security buzzer hadn't buzzed, I imagined that it was a neighbour from the same building, attractive and recently widowed come to introduce herself bearing some spicy Sichuanese delicacy as a welcome gift. The prelude to an epic east-west romance, a torrid affair so deeply emotional and physically astounding, it could only be revealed to the general public once rendered bland and sexless by Reader's Digest. Probably in laughter's the best medicine. But I didn't know if the security buzzer even buzzed at all. My only other visitor thus far had been Mr Wong, spelt W-A-N-G, but disappointingly pronounced Wong. He was my immediate boss at Diang Foreign Language School and he simply yelled, Oh, Mr Buddy, Wong is here! from downstairs whenever he showed up, which was already too often for my liking. My door shook beneath the kind of overconfident battering usually produced only by policemen. And sure enough, a peek through the shuddering spy hole revealed two members of China's police force, the Public Security Bureau, or PSB. A hefty lady with bars on her shoulders stood back looking disapprovingly at her companion, a ferrety fellow with stripes on his sleeves, as if he'd failed to correctly master the approved technique for the cacophonous bashing of an ornate wooden obstacle to the progress of the people. I knew I should open the door before they broke it down, but even as my hand obediently reached for the latch, I mentally slipped into the character of that weedy little guy with the high voice in every 1930s gangster movie. Cheese it, I thought. It's the cops. The jig's up. But then my imaginary Edward G. Robinson backhanded me with a trademark sneer. <laughs> what jig? And Eddie G. was right. You see, my jig would be illegally working as an English teacher and school hadn't started yet. As far as these coppers knew, I was just an innocent traveller. My tourist visa was valid. Yes, Comrade Constable, it's mere coincidence that I happen to be living in a large, furnished, recently renovated apartment paid for by the Diang School for Foreign Languages. It's just a coincidence, honest, yeah. <laughs> Besides, Sonny's English Club, the recruiting company, had the paperwork for my Category Z working visa already underway. Oh, so they told me. I opened the door and faced the wall, assuming the search position, but the frenetic fuzz pushed past me and amid loud discussion began pulling the wires out of my television, completely confusing my already bewildered brain. That bewilderment had commenced the previous Sunday when I boarded a cheap flight from Sydney to Singapore, near Agog at the adventure of a new career in an unknown land. I was desperate to do something new and challenging and in a hurry to do it, as mortality loomed large. I was 53 years old, and four good friends had died in their 50s over the past couple of years. My father had been dropped by an aneurysm at the age of 58. My only real exercise was walking between pubs and I was older and heavier than I'd ever been before. 
I was also as bored as I'd ever been. Over 20 years ago, I'd started making money as a comedy writer, then moved into breakfast radio, which I loved, and then live television, which was also fantastic fun for a few years. But then I'd wandered from job to increasingly mundane job, eventually finding myself writing TV shows I wouldn't watch and radio ads for products I would never buy, ending up as a copywriter on Brisbane Radio 4BC, where creativity and humour were viewed as forms of Satan worship. I wanted to love my work again and was pretty sure I'd love teaching. All my life, people had been telling me that I'd be a good teacher. I believed them and went to university on a teacher scholarship, but then discovered booze and women and boozy women and dropped out to go into advertising as I was reliably and correctly informed agencies were happy hunting grounds for boozy women. <laughs> Mind you, no one had ever suggested I'd be a good teacher in China. That was down to my anecdote gene. As an intelligent and thoughtful man who continually makes inexplicably stupid decisions, I choose to believe I have the anecdote gene, admittedly as yet unknown to science. It's a congenital predisposition to select the option which is most likely to result in a funny story. In this instance, I interviewed for two positions, one in the Czech Republic and one in China. I love Europe, Czech beer is fabulous, Czech women are gorgeous, Every Czech I've ever met has been well-educated, friendly and cultured. So I went to China. More specifically, I went to China on board Scoot. Scoot is Singapore Airlines' budget brand, and my ticket was the cheapest option. No meals, no check baggage, no entertainment, no legroom, but no worries. I had three seats to myself, I had muesli bars, I had cheese and crackers, I had three books to read, I had an unopened packet of sleeping tablets, unopened because a year ago the doctor had warned me that they were very addictive. Also they were to be taken an hour or two before bed and I never knew on which nights I'd suffer insomnia. Besides, you couldn't take them after drinking alcohol so the opportunity rarely came up anyway. But this was pharmacology's chance to finally do some good in the world by rendering me insensate for most of the 10 hour flight. Waiting for the magic pill to kick in, I tried to get comfortable, but was just too big for the space. Head or feet dangling in the aisle would surely cop a collision with an attendant's trolley or rampaging toddler. I couldn't recline my seats as an Indian family of five inhabited the three spaces behind me. The kids were lounging backwards, but the parents had leant forward and were apparently sleeping with their heads resting on the backs of two of my seats. Although drowsy, I felt that sleep was as likely to arrive as a recently divorced dad to the ex-wife's birthday party. After what seemed like an hour or so of tossing, turning, yawning and cursing the useless pills, I stood and punched the Indian father in the side of the head. He seemed surprised, but not combative. That Gandhi bloke taught them well. My intent had been to head for the toilet, but upon rising I'd reeled and wheeled wildly, attempting to grab a seat for support, my clenched fists shot between the headrests, rendering the unfortunate subcontinental a substantial blow to the left temple. As I apologised, he seemed to shrink away in fright until I realised that he was sitting still and the increasing distance was caused by me stumbling backwards down the aisle. As I pirouetted past the loo, I grabbed the door handle and hoisted myself inside. After performing the necessaries, I made my way back to my seats with the dogmatic determination of an octogenarian fighting her way through the supermarket pet food aisle on pension day. 
Securely strapped in, I checked the time and discovered that I'd been asleep, or at least semi-conscious, for more than five hours. Apparently, the drug worked better than I'd thought and was still rendering me wobbly. By Singapore, I'd regained most of my balance and after making it through customs and immigration without involuntarily attacking anybody, had four or five hours to wait for the connecting flight to China. Fortunately, Changi Airport regularly wins international awards for its extraordinary range of transfer experiences, including free movies and video games, a butterfly garden and other botanic wonders, even a free two-hour guided tour of Singapore, and the alluring, if slightly alarming, fish micro-massage therapy. Naturally, none of these is available in the middle of the night on the weekend when I was there. The usual airport ennui was tainted with inherited anxiety. Since the Japanese atrocities of the Second World War, the word Changi seeds dread in the hearts of all Australians as the accursed site of a murderously cruel prisoner of war camp. Luckily, the You Are Here map revealed the perfect place to seek solace. An allegedly Irish pub in the nearby shopping mall. Automatically ordering a pint of Guinness upon entry, I eagerly awaited the satisfying spectacle of the settling. The black gold of St James Gate needs gentle handling and patient pouring. The tan beading should lovingly caress the glass as it coalesces into the delicious, creamy head. But the idiot behind this bar made the Guinness gush from the tap with the volume and velocity of a fire hose trying to extinguish a burning oil rig. The resulting frothy, roiling liquid was tasteless and tepid. And they charged me 15 Australian dollars. I can't go on. Like most people traumatised in Changi, the memory hurts too much to talk about it. So why are the Chinese police pulling my TV apart? What disgusting mystery will I solve in the exotic-sounding city of Tianjin? And will OK Airlines live up to their name? Find out next time on Party in China. You've been listening to Party in China. For more, like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter. Subscribe to the podcast at Audio Boom, Stitcher, iTunes, or your favorite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Bytes.com.